Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Well, good evening, everybody. It is lovely to see you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Richard. I'm the curate down the road at Holy Trinity Lane, and I'm on the team here at St. George's. And I'm very excited to be able to continue in our series in Galatians this week. It's our second week in Galatians. And what I want to do in a nutshell this evening is give us a little bit of context about the book of Galatians just to get us bedded in to where we are and to what it is that we're talking about. And then really simply, I want to talk about what the gospel of Jesus is and then I want to talk about some false gospels that we might have started believing instead. So we're going to do a little bit of context, gospel of Jesus, false gospels, and then we'll respond. I hope that sounds okay. It's what I've got planned, so um, I hope it is. I don't have anything else to go to, so uh, we'll see how we get on. But in terms of context for Galatians, perhaps the first thing to say is when, it's, well, when it was written. Now, it's hard to say exactly when any book off of the past was written, especially one that was written as long ago as Galatians. But most scholars are broadly in agreement that it was somewhere in the late AD 40s. Now, this is important for two reasons. Firstly, it's important because it gives us a bit of an insight into the life and the community of one of the first churches. Sometimes church can feel like it's traditional or we've got used to it. This gives us a sneak peek into what was going on in one of the first churches. And secondly, the reason that it's early is important is because if you want to try and figure out how reliable something is historically, one way of doing that is to see what the time that has elapsed is between when the thing happened that they're talking about and when it was written. That short gap of time means that this book that we're talking about is quite a reliable text when it comes to talking about Jesus, who he is, and what he did. So when late AD 40s, that's important for those reasons. Secondly, who? Who is it written to? There's a sense in which it's written to to us because we get to access it and we get to read it and we get to learn from it today. But initially, in its original setting, we see in verse 2 that the letter was sent to a group of churches in the geographical area of Galatia. So it wasn't sent to one church. It was sent to a group of churches within an area. So the letter would have been taken from church to church by somebody who would have read it and explained it and kind of answered any questions people might have had about it and then moved on. Now, the reason why I think that is important, other than to nerd out a little bit, is because if we're talking about an area rather than a particular church, then talking about the area that it was in enables the person who's writing the letter to address the culture of that area more generally rather than the church specifically. That's important based on what I'm going to talk about later when we talk about some of the false gospels that I think we might have started believing. The false gospels I name aren't going to be ones that I think we in here and only here believe. They're going to be false gospels that I think are in the culture more broadly. Um, So that's when, a little bit about who. Finally, as a bit of a, a spoiler alert, it's an angry letter. Paul is angry, and the reason why he's angry, we'll find out, but Paul is opposing a false 
gospel in this letter, and particularly in the passage that we heard read, and you'll have heard some of the strong language that was so beautifully read by Phil about how Paul is astonished at the fact that the Galatians were falling for and believing a false gospel and how they'd been thrown into confusion by people who perverted the gospel of Jesus. In short, what had happened in Galatia, Jewish missionaries had found their way into the churches in Galatia and were insisting that circumcision that was part of uh, Jewish law, they were insisting that that requirement of Jewish law was carried over and was still a requirement to be saved in the, the churches of Galatia. They were saying that Jesus on his own didn't save, it was Jesus and circumcision. Paul's saying that is a false gospel, it's Jesus that saves, and so he's wanting to push against that false gospel. Um, again, I've, I've operated on the assumption, please correct me if I'm wrong after, but I've operated on the assumption here this evening that most, if not all of us, are not thinking that we need to go and get circumcised after this so that we can be saved by Jesus. So again, the false gospels I'm talking about tonight aren't that. We're going to talk about some other ones. So it's an early letter, which gives us a sneak peek, a bit of an insight into the life of one of the early churches. It's written to an area with churches within it that had bought into um, some things that weren't true. And Paul is writing angrily as he tries to correct the error and correct the places where the Galatian Christians have gone wrong and tries to pull them back to the true gospel. So that begs the question then, doesn't it? If he's trying to pull them back to the true gospel, begs the question, what is the true gospel then? Because it's all, well, it's all well and good to say, you've deserted it. But what is the it? Helpfully for us, Paul outlines the gospel of Christ in the first five verses. So I'm going to walk through speedily enough to hopefully keep us engaged, but not so quick as to just miss all the meaning of what Paul understands when he talks about the gospel of Jesus, the true gospel of Jesus. So verse 1, we see that Paul isn't speaking in his own strength, his own name or his own authority. He's speaking in the name of God. He opens up by saying, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right from the outset, of Paul's description of the gospel, he's saying this is not a human-made thing. This is a God-sent thing. The gospel of Jesus isn't something we just make up and think, oh, that sounds good, let's try that out. It's something true that came from God. He's saying that what he's about to say hasn't been devised by people, but instead it's been authored by God from the beginning. The gospel of Jesus is God authored, not man made. Verse 2, Paul does go on to mention the brothers and sisters that he's been with, spent time with. They may well have been with him as he wrote it. So there's space for community in what Paul's doing. And he's happy to, to call on others to lend weight to what it is that he's saying. So it's not just the Paul and God thing. There's a community aspect to this, but notice the other is God first. 
gospel comes from God and it's confirmed by the testimony of others. But it isn't made by the others, it's, it's God authored. Verse 3. We can receive grace and peace from God through Jesus. Now, as I was reflecting on these words, I thought, grace and peace are words that are heard a lot if you're used to being in church. I can't remember the last time I heard either of them defined. So I'm going to give it a go. This isn't everything to be said about these two words, but just to try and flesh them out a little bit. For those of us who are used to these words, hopefully it's just a reminder. For those of us who are maybe new to Christianity, new to church, you're so welcome here. And this is just a bit of an introduction to when we talk about grace and peace as followers of Jesus, this is the kind of stuff that we mean. So grace, we can think of that in terms of God's kindness or God's gift or God's favour. There is a sense in which when we're talking about the grace of God, we are talking about something that is being given. It's not something that we do or we create. It's something that is God made, as we heard, God authored and then God given. It's about God's kindness. It's about a gift. It's about his favour through Jesus. Grace comes from God through Jesus. And then peace can be understood as harmony, tranquility, or this isn't a technical term, but as it should be-ness. Work with me on that. When we're talking about the peace of God, when we're talking about knowing his peace, we're talking about knowing life as it always was meant to be. There was a time in scripture when it was God and it was his people in the garden and it was as it was meant to be. There's loads that can be said about peace. But one of the things that can come to your mind when you're thinking about the peace of God is that as it should be-ness of Eden where it was God and his people in community and in relationship. So in this verse we see that Paul can speak of the kind, gift-giving God who can offer us life as it was always meant to be, now and into eternity. Now whether that's something that you're used to hearing or whether you're new, I hope we can, we can all agree that if that's true, that's really good news. Now, I realise for some of you that if that's true bit is a huge question. It's by far from a given that if that's true. If that's you, let's talk about it after. I'd love to do that. But if that's true, that's really good news. And so if it's true, and if that is um, what Paul's talking about, if that's the what, then the question is how. How does that come to be? How does the gospel of Jesus come to be realised in the world? Helpfully, verse 4 tells us that. It goes on to say, talking about Jesus who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So how do we get the God-authored, God-given gift of grace 
and peace, we get it through the actions of Jesus who died on the cross to rescue you and me and to call us back into relationship with God as it was always meant to be. And notice that language of to rescue us from the present evil age. I didn't write the Greek for the rescue bit on my notes, which is just as well, because even if I did, I'd probably butcher the pronunciation anyway. But that rescue us word in other places in the Bible is translated almost like gouge out or to tear out. It's a decisive, final, quite abrupt action. God takes decisive action through the giving of his son to rescue us from the present evil age and to call us into relationship, into eternity with God the Father. Now that present evil age, peace, in the context of the first century, Paul is talking about the common conception of time there that Jews would have had where they would have understood that the present age and the age to come. Jews understood time in two ages, present age and the one to come. He's describing, he's saying the present age is the evil one, but it's, it's, it's Jesus, the action of Jesus, the saving work of Jesus that saves us and brings us into the promise of the age to come. And at the point of Jesus' resurrection, he brings in that age to come there and then. So then both of them are running concurrently and at once. So some of you might have heard language made that now and not yet of the kingdom or the already and the still more. That is talking about the idea that simultaneously there's the present evil age running alongside the perfected age that Jesus died and rose to bring in and to invite all who believe in him to spend eternity in with him. They're running concurrently, which is why we simultaneously see some horrible things in the world and some beautiful things in the world. Jesus meets us at the time now where they're running concurrently with the promise that he meets us now and has won for us an eternity with him where the present evil age will one day be no more and there's just eternity with God in all his beauty and all his fullness and in all his holiness. That's the gospel. There's, more, there's always more that can be said, but in a nutshell, that's the gospel. And because of all of that, we'll see in verse 5 how Paul talks about glory is to be to God. Because of all of that, because of all that God has done for us. Notice the active members in that whole story. It's God who authored it. It's God who gives the gift. It's God who, by the actions of his son, calls us into eternal relationship with him. God does it all. It's a gift from him. To all those who believe in him. And it's because of that that we give him glory. Not to earn anything, but to say thank you for all that he's done for us. That's the Christian gospel. It's the gospel that Paul wants the church in Galatia to know. And he wants all Christians from that point on to know. He wants you today to know. The gospel of Jesus is a gift from God that is all about what he's done to save us.
And then verse 6 is where the angry bit comes in. Then verse 6 says, in light of all of that, I'm astonished that you've gone after another one. I'm astonished that you've gone after another gospel. Verse 7, he says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now that evidently word is interesting, isn't it? At least I think it is. Because if something is evident, it means that you can see the evidence of the thing in front of you. It means that there's evidence not just in what the people are saying and thinking, but in what they're doing that shows that they've moved away from the gospel of Jesus and towards another one. Gospels require living out. And so you could figure out the gospel that somebody believes by listening to what they say, you can also figure it out by observing how they live. Two different ways of getting to the same thing. I find one a lot harder than the other. I think it's true. But I hope you know the seriousness that Paul has here, the seriousness with which he holds going after another gospel. We've already heard, haven't we, the false gospel that Paul was countering in terms of um, people thinking that they had to be circumcised. They were adding on the circumcision. They were doing Jesus and circumcision to be saved. And, and Paul saying, no, it's Jesus and, and, and nothing. But I do think that today we, and by we, I don't, well, maybe I mean we, but more broadly I mean we, <laughs> you know, culturally. I think there's a few different Gospels that we see running around in our culture that butt up against the Gospel of Jesus. Let me run a few of them past you and see what you make of them. So the first one, I called it the gospel of self-help, but maybe self-determination or self-actualization might be more, might be a better term, but something around that, the gospel of self-help will run with. Now I'm a bit of a geek, I like reading books, and I found this quote from a 2017 book by a guy called Will Storr, it's called Selfie, How the West Became Self-Obsessed. Strong title. And if if I had to summarize the whole book in a sentence from the book, it'd be this one. It says this, the authentic self is God-like. Notice the language of God in there. The authentic self is God-like. Our true thoughts and feelings shouldn't be repressed. What the self wants, it should have. And there may be some of you today who are here saying, well, what's wrong with that? That's fine, isn't it? I can decide what I want. Once I've decided that, I'll go and I'll do it. Done. If it's the case that the world around us 
It's just a load of raw materials that happen to be here. Not created, not designed, not given. If they just popped up sometime, that works. Because there's no prior understanding of how things should be or how we should live or any kind of design that we're to live into. If none of that's there, we can just do the whole, I'll decide what I want for me and if you decide a different thing for you, that's fine. I'll decide what I want, you decide what you want and we're all good. But if it's the case that we're created, and if it's the case that we're created, we're designed by a creator or by a designer who says, I made you and I made you to live in this way. Because I made you, I know, I know what's best for you. that's true we don't get to do the whole I do what I say we do what he says because he made us and he made us with a purpose and a design and a plan in mind I know some people who somehow managed to fluke making Ikea furniture without reading the instructions I'm not one of those people. But living the good life is a little bit harder than making an Ikea wardrobe. We don't get to just decide that for ourselves if there's a creator, if we're made, if we're designed. We need to live in line with what that creator, maker and designer says. They're separate things. I don't think you get to say, yeah, I'll have both. So the gospel of self-help says, I'm not interested in the whole creator thing. I'll decide for me what's good. You can do that, but I think at that point, we're seeing a departure from what the gospel of Jesus would say about how we're to live. Second one, gospel of political rescue. This is where I realise or reveal just how much of a loser I really am. And tell you that I've been reading The New Statesman this week. Anybody else? Just me? Cool. Um, <laughs> and there was an article in The New Statesman entitled The End of the Liberal Delusion. And it was talking about how at the turn of the century... Our political leaders, particularly in the West, claimed progress was inevitable. As we moved from end of 20th century and into 21st, political leaders were increasingly thinking, I think we've smashed it. I think this really complicated world that we're living in, I think we've got the conditions about right. I know it was hard, I know it took a while, but... I think we've just like finished. And so we can just live like this forever and it'll all be fine. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> Didn't quite turn out that way. 
Now, let me be really clear. I'm not anti-politics. We need good politicians. We need Christian politicians. We need wise people who can legislate and who can make decisions on behalf of the public that are for our good. We need that. I'm for that. But politics isn't going to save us. Jesus does that. When talking about the kind of collapse of the, you know, the kind of liberal order, this article in the New Statesman was saying, in this new era, there's no place for utopian projects to remake the world or ideological fantasies. I do think I've observed an attitude that says if we just get the right politicians in the right place and the right policies at the right time, we'll get to the kingdom of God without the king. It's not going to happen. We need the king. So the gospel of self-help, the gospel of political rescue. Indulge me with just one more. And then I promise I'll be quiet. This week, there might be another. You know. <laughs> so the gospel of technological advancement. A journalist this week described us as having a childlike faith in the magic of technology. Notice that faith thing in there again. The first one, we were talking about the authentic self being godlike. Now we're talking about faith in technology. The fact is, we all believe in something. Belief isn't optional. There's not a group of people who believe stuff and then a group of people who don't. Everyone believes something. The question is, what do you believe in? And increasingly, commentators are saying, well, we believe that we're just going to technologize our way to where we need to be. I think we see this in all sorts of places. And again, I'm, I like technology. I like that I can drive here rather than ride a horse. I'm for that. I like that. But I don't know if you've been um, tracking with some of the AI stuff that's been spoken about in the news. There's a writer, um, Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote um, some big books about stuff. <laughs> Could write a review with that, couldn't you? Um, Listen to what he says about AI. He says, what will happen to the course of history when AI takes over culture and begins producing stories, melodies, laws, and religions? Previous tools like the printing press and radio helped spread the cultural ideas of humans, but they never created new cultural ideas of their own. AI is fundamentally different. AI can create new ideas, completely new culture. Now, again, that's not to, to knock that or to be down on that. It's just to say that in this desire to, to go whole hog on the technology thing, we're ending up in a place where we've got a little bit of mystery 
and where there's something else calling the shots that we don't fully understand, we don't quite know what's going on, but it seems like it's good. We've already got that. It's called the gospel of Jesus. The difference with the gospel of technological advancement is that we can say that we did that. The gospel of Jesus involves us saying it wasn't us, it was all him. I don't know what you think of those. You might think I'm a million miles off. There's more to add. I almost dropped the technology one and had a whole gospel of um, material possessions. The fact is our culture invites us to put hope in all sorts of things. All sorts of things. Now as Christians we can engage with those things. But our hope is found in Jesus. And here's the thing. That may not be a popular thing to say. It might not be popular. If you meet someone who says, well, I know what's best for my life, so I'm going to do what I want to do, and here you to tell me otherwise, and I say, well, actually, I believe that God knows what's best for me, so I'm going to live in line with how he's made me. The person you're talking to might love that. They might hate it. But Paul was onto that. He was onto that in verse 10 when he said, If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. As Christians, we live for an audience of one. And it's not me. It's not not my partner, it's Jesus. We give everything to him because he first gave everything for us. To live into the gospel of Jesus involves refusing false Gospels and living into the true one. The true one that said that God the Father sent his son, Jesus, in grace and in peace to save us and to call us into the relationship with him that we were always meant to have. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.